Welcome to Cursed Objects, a podcast about politics, cultural history, uh, a bit of theory, most of all, tat, the uh, material objects that we find uh, in the sort of dark and dusty corners of charity shops, um, in the uh, stranger parts of eBay, uh, and in sort of weird photos in Twitter and Instagram. Um, And if you haven't listened to the podcast before, every week we take one of these objects and we use it as a kind of prism, uh, not that's a prism, not a prism, through which to look at um, the sort of recent history, generally politics, society uh, and popular culture. Um, this is part two of a Queen's Death double header, um, in which I would implore you to go and listen to episode <laughs> one. Well, yeah, that's what it is, isn't it, Kasha? Uh, anyway, my, my name's Dan Hancock. I'm, uh, you probably know that already. But yeah, go and listen to episode one first, because um, my wonderful co-host, Kasha, explains what the cursed object is. I, I'm Dan Hancock, a journalist and an author, and I'm uh, still wearing a black polo neck, as I was in part one of this episode. And my co-host is Kasha T, Dr. Kasha T, that is. Hello. Uh, what are you, Kasha? <laughs> Bad question. <laughs> Absolutely exhausted oh. after the last two weeks of national morning. Bless you. If if you di- if you haven't, I mean, just to remind you, if you listened to episode one a little a little while ago, part one a little while ago, um, we talked about Paddington Bear and the problem of marmalade, the scourge, should we say, of marmalade sandwiches left around our parks in London in the aftermath of the death of Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, we talked about a great deal more besides, and I'm sure some of those themes are going to overlap, but. We just had so much to say that we've decided to divvy this up into two parts. Um, the sort of national morning uh, uh, monarchy public brief episode uh, doubleheader, <laughs> essentially. Dan, I'm dying to ask you, mm. um, did you go <laughs> and visit the queue? Uh, I, I didn't. I didn't do it. <laughs> I meant to visit the queue and I meant to visit um, the like Buckingham Palace as well. Um, I have quite a, this is going to sound po-faced, but like I did actually cite a bit, just you'll have to take my word for it. I cycled into central London the first Saturday after the Queen died with the intention of going to see, I'm interested in crowds, right? And I wanted to go and see what the mood was like. I wanted to see what the vibe was like. I wanted to see how many people were there. Because I think one of the things we want to talk about in this this half of the episode um, is just sort of how total like what is a national mood how totalizing is it can you ever have a national mood um how much has this swept the nation uh, and how much is that just sort of something the media thinks sort of ought to be happening or wants to say is happening i've heard lots of conflicting reports about how busy it was in central london you know uh anyway i did not get as far as um uh, the mall which is the road that runs down to buckingham palace where a lot of a lot of mourners were uh, slash visitors. I got on the way there. I remember. I realised that there was a demo demanding justice for Chris Carber. Uh, not to get wildly off topic here, but a young man that was shot dead by the police uh, in South London the day before the Queen uh, passed away, and it was been completely buried in the news. At one horrible moment, Sky News showed footage of this demo for justice for Chris Carber from a helicopter. And the newsreader said that it was a demo. It's like, oh, you can see the people mourning the Queen have started a memorial march there, which is insane because that's something no one's ever done. Like, not for a not for a monarch who's died age ninety six. Why would you do? Why would you go on a march? That's so weird. Just weird. Anyway, she then did a public apology eventually. 
I kind of think she, it wasn't her fault. Like it's clearly the fault of the production team uh, and the assumptions that they were making behind behind the scenes. Like they would have just fed stuff into her ear. She was sort of unfairly getting all the bile, to be honest. Um, news readers don't write their own scripts. Like, um, but anyway, I just wanted to do a little sidebar there and say other things have been going on in London and have been getting no fucking attention from the BBC whatsoever, which is one of the things I want to complain about in this episode. Um, that said, Cash. No, I did not uh, make it to the queue or to Buckingham Palace. And I really regret that. I wanted, I, even though it would have probably made my stomach turn a little bit, I wanted to see what the vibe was like. So what was it like? So, yeah, I, because I'm a historian. Seeing history in real time, right? Well, yeah, exactly. I was profoundly struck by how strange it was mm. that, um, that this had happened. Well, not strange that, you know, the Queen had passed away at 96, but, like, people's reactions I found incredibly varied. I had a lot of friends who were, I assumed, Republicans, actually telling me that they got really teary at, at the Queen passing away. Did, did they go down in person, though? Were they experiencing that there? In, in, no. no. Just no. curious if that... Because I wondered no. if that was the sort of thing that would make someone who was, you know, like, oh, I'm not a monarchist, but... Yeah, no, it was weird. I think there are a couple of strange and competing motivations. I think one was uh, quite a lot of people were driven, I guess, by a sense that I kind of felt compelled by as well, which is like a sense of being part of an event in history and that being quite a lot of the reasons why people maybe even engaged with it at all. Mm. You know, in that sense that there is a... Awake, not awake, not a party, but you know, an event happening in London, something that will never be, yeah. that won't be seen on the same scale in your lifetime. Where were you when the Queen died? I mean, that's fascinating. That in and of itself is fascinating because it shows us so much about our mortality, but also, I guess, the power of capital H history, yeah. like what that has on our lives, Absolutely. right? The narratives that linear time have, that there are transformative events and that you must be present and part of that to feel like you are, mm. I don't know, like a member of society, yeah. a member of the world. Like, it's insane. Not insane. Sorry. No, go on. It's the opposite of insane. It's it's very, it's very relatable, isn't it? <laughs> really, like it's you know. Yeah, I yeah, mean, so, yeah. so two things. One, you mentioned the "Where were you when the Queen died?" Uh, motif in the first episode of this uh, of this podcast, and you mentioned it again. You haven't actually told me where you were when the Queen died, though. <laughs> Come on. I mean, I'll tell you. I'll oh, tell yeah. you first if, like if you want. But where were you when the Queen died, I Grandma? Like, <laughs> I feel like I feel. I feel like Dan because um, because we speak so often. I feel like you're in my brain a lot of the time, so I don't say things out loud. I'm like Dan will obviously know all of the things I do. <laughs> <laughs> obviously. Well, our listeners. I, I mean, I do. Fair enough. But but our listeners don't. That's true. That's true. I can't. I can't just communicate telepathically with you. Um, because it wouldn't make a very good podcast. Anyway, um, <laughs> I was walking in between the Holloway Road and Tufnell Park. Oh. That is where I was after a whole day of being like, oh, I think the Queen's going to die. Oh, I think I think something's going to happen. And mm. like, you know, WhatsApp messages were going crazy. Everyone was like, oh, something big's happening. Oh, something's happening with the Queen. It was just so weird. I've never probably can't think of something comparable to that moment right. where I was I had so many WhatsApp messages from so many different people just being like oh have you heard about this it was just really really strange and I was just after a whole day of looking at my phone being like you know constantly watching the news or whatever being like oh I wonder what's going to happen it was like the <laughs> obviously sod's law I was walking and not on my phone or looking at the news when it did actually was actually announced do you know what I mean yeah, I mean, I was looking at my phone. I was, where, you know, okay, throw the question back to myself. Where were you when the Queen died, Grandad? Well, young, <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know, Jennifer. Um, I was looking at a WhatsApp message from my friend Sam Gill who told me that the Queen had died. Like, it's not, that's that's not a good story, is it? What does that like? I was sitting on my. Yeah, I was what sitting, the fuck? I was literally. I, How are you going to relate to society now? Who's going to. When your memoirs are written, Dan, when someone is like, right, I am Dan Hancock's official yeah. biographer. Not a sanctioning an official where, biography, sorry. Carry on. 
don't trust anybody else. Um, but yeah, there isn't going to be there isn't going to be a single mention of this event. This is, People are going to think that you didn't live through yeah, it. Yeah, well, this is this. Is, I mean, that's, I'm just trying to say. I think you walking between the Holloway Road and wherever you, were you what were you going to get a laxa or so? That's the only thing I can think of. Or going to the Lamb. Um, then, then like that's more interesting. Sitting on my bed looking at a WhatsApp message is not a good answer to that question, is it? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, like that's that's not that's not a great story. Anyway, but yeah, this I wonder when that began with the where were you when you heard thing because it it speaks to the sort of media like the famous one is JFK like uh, where were you when Diana died something for my generation like but like before J- where were you when Michael Jackson died I remember that was quite big sure I was on the three two six bus coming back from High Barnet I was in a chateau in France babe much better answer um, with very <laughs> with very bad like phone reception but yeah I think. Um, <laughs> Is uh, I was on holiday to be clear. I don't I don't know, have a mate that lives in a chateau. <laughs> I'm not I'm not that posh. But yeah, I think it's it's it's. It, I wonder when that first became a thing. Like, did people in the 1910s say where were you when Victoria died? Like, do you remember where you were when you heard? Were, were they were they in, were they keen to situate themselves in history in that way that you're describing? That sort of is sort of validating, right? Like that's part of the appeal, right? It's like I I exist in more than just this moment. I exist in a long narrative of events that are worthy of documenting in in in, in history books, you know? I think yes. I think that it would be a part um, of history. Yeah, I think having read quite a lot of I mean maybe not everyone, but I having read quite a lot of um actually read quite a lot of books on on questions you know I guess the kind of fundamental questions of that relate to like the idea of like humans and history mm. big hate history I would say yes but also having seen a TikTok <laughs> quite recently that was really compelling that was like what's, what's TikTok grandma <laughs> yeah, sorry <laughs> yeah <laughs> um people of our generation being like oh it was so much better in the 19 1920s oh like or like 1980s people in the 1980s being like oh I guess it was so much better in the 1930s well not really because 1930s were terrible but you know what I mean like people relating to historical time periods Mm. and going oh I bet life was better then Um, yes or not just better but you know like wondering about what life was like back then I think is a kind of condition one of the things that I want to talk about some of the politic political narratives around our relationship with the monarchy that came up during this period of uh, enforced top-down national mourning. And one of them I've seen described as soft royalism, which is where people ascribe, like people in positions of power in the media, ascribed a certain uh, sensibility to or kind of dictated a certain sensibility to those of us that are not ardent monarchists and uh, mm. you sort of referenced this at the end of our last uh, last episode um on on uh, marmalade sandwiches Kasha, when you sort of said that you said something about liberals um kind of maybe having a slightly different relationship to, to those of us on the left here even if they describe themselves like look I'm no fan of the monarchy but and there was a lot of that mm. coming from positions people in positions of power in the media like you know that even even republicans would say that the queen was good at her job and as if it's a job you know we're, we're good, we're, that she was a good person doing good work um, there was a lot of use of the phrase whatever your views on the monarchy dot 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 you know like mm. like that the, you simply have to accept uh, and the thing is you're not given a ch- I mean it's been such a climate of uh, such a monoculture I think is the phrase I want to use um, over the last fortnight that's why I found extremely distasteful I found it depressing I found it deeply undemocratic I found it like completely disproves any idea that that, that, you know, we are a democracy. And I think it was all summed up for me when Andrew Marr, um, a man who has a, a real history of, like, speaking, what's the right phrase here? Rather than speaking truth to power, basically, like, using his power to suck up to, to people who are in more power. So Andrew Marr is a perfect example of, of this kind of uh, liberal mentality. He was on TV talking about the uh, people that were being locked up or arrested at least for protesting um, but for like the just the barest hint of Republican sentiment anywhere near 
any of the uh, sort of Queen Memorial stuff. So there was famously a guy that held a piece of paper, um, a, a blank piece of paper up and said, if I write, he's not my king on this, will you arrest me? And they said, and the cops were like, yes, for example. And, uh, you know, there was a certain amount of liberal sort of outrage at the sort of, you know, the, the crackdown on free speech here. Obviously, absolutely nothing from the right. The right, the, Brit- the British right wing that kind of have done nothing but whinge on about uh, so-called free speech issues, uh, but, you know, because some someone at a university doesn't want to have a massive transphobe speaking. And it's like, this is about our free speech. Obviously, they've had absolutely fuck all to say about um, the climate of you know, completely the, the monoculture essentially um, that has sort of emanated from our from our media over the last fortnight. Um, Andrew Marr, to his credit as a liberal, says on TV, "Look, all of these crackdowns on protests, the, the fact that you're not allowed to express any dissent against the monarchy at all, even respectfully, that's bad." So, to to be fair to Andrew Marr, he's done the first bit of being a liberal correctly, right? Okay, that obviously a liberal should believe in the ability Woo. to say, "Yeah, well done, Andrew." He then he then goes on to say something truly remarkable, and I think it's very revealing. He then went on to say, "Look, this is really, you know, we are we are a democracy, and it's really um, not okay that police are arresting people simply for peacefully protesting." And in fact, he goes on to say. Charles, King Charles himself, I think if he knew this was happening, he would hate the fact that people are being locked up for saying that he shouldn't be king. He would not approve of it. Now that to me, that that drove me crazy because several things are going on here. Point one, and that's Andrew Marr displaying his own parasocial relationship with the king, as discussed in our first yeah. episode. But expressing it as a, as as if it was a popularly held belief yeah. by everyone. Yeah, held it. Like, as if uh, as if like oh, I mean, of course he's he renowned. Of course the king would think he's this. renowned for being I mean? a liberal like, on his speech matters, free speech matters. How the fuck do you know that? Like it's it's also I mean it's also perhaps doing another thing, which is suggesting that and. Andrew Marr suggesting that he knows the king's mind because he's the courtier who is close to power, right? It's like self-aggrandizement mm. at the same time. It's like I know, mm. you know, like through good contacts, maybe I've met I've met him a couple of times. I can say with confidence because I know the king's mind. I mean, it's truly medieval shit. It really is. Like being like, listen, peasants, I know the king's mind. That's that is what you would have done in the medieval period to like self-aggrandize. Thirdly, like I don't believe that the King. I don't believe that there's no evidence for it whatsoever. That's the third point. There's no evidence um, that King Charles is a free speech fundamentalist who, you know, fervently wants people to be able to say that he should not be king and that his brother is, you know, insert redacted thing here um, and should be locked up. It's also extremely resonant of a a a joke from Stalinist Russia. And from the Chinese Communist Party, like it's actually a trope. Uh, a friend of mine told me in kind of uh, among political scientists who study the Chinese Communist Party that um, that people will always will blame a sort of abstract bureaucracy and always say that the man at the top, that Xi, essentially or Stalin in the in the communist joke version is not responsible. So the communist joke version is that um, Stalin has one of his senior lieutenants locked up, uh, taken to a show trial on completely spurious charges, threatened, and he's going to, you know, he's going to be exiled to Siberia. And as he's being dragged away by guards, this lieutenant says, you wait till Stalin hears about this. He's going to be furious. And that's exactly, yeah, that's the laugh line, yeah. So, like, that, that's exactly what that's exactly what Charles is doing, right? Like, he's being like, he's being like you know, this is, this is never the fault of the man at the top of this incredibly hierarchical... It's like it's how it's how those hierarchical power systems reinforce themselves, essentially, is by having lickspittle courtiers like Andrew Marr making excuses for them in public and saying like, oh, they don't approve of the terrible thing that's happening that only serves their power. Do you see what I mean? Like, I absolutely know what you mean. And, you know, it really got me thinking about... Um... The politics of the queue, so just on like a little bit of a tangent, but when the queue to go and, and walk past the Queen's Queen lying mm. in state, you know, on the first day, they, it, it, I don't think it was like super busy, but then over the days it got increasingly more rammed. Yeah. So many people were going to visit. So they invented what 
<laughs> well, I could only think of because of you talking about it, Azil Lane, but Azil Lane <laughs> to oh. go and see to go and see the Queen. So, well, to go and see the Queen's coffin. You mean like an ex- which is like spe- speedy boarding, basically, right? <laughs> speedy boarding, yeah, basically. And uh, the nation's former sweethearts, Holly and Phil, of uh, oh daytime television, and also like horrible dystopian game shows where they offer to, you know heat people's homes and pay for their heating over the winter. Oh God, they did do that, uh, didn't they? Yeah. On morning television. Yeah, I mean, they've had a, they've had an atrocious couple of months. <laughs> but anyway, they they were caught up in this scandal because um, they went in the fast track. Mm. They went through the speedy boarding when, I mean, speedy boarding. I mean, it's, it sounds ridiculous, but these are the, these, this is actually, it's about infrastructure here, mm. you know? Like, what do you do when there's a really long queue? But there are certain people who are deemed more important than others well sorry that's actually the perfect metaphor for the monarchy like yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like people outraged that there's a that there that there is a quick cue for the monarchy yeah, yeah it's the monarchy there's a great tweet about <laughs> that wasn't there like isn't the democracy this isn't communism yeah, yeah, yeah like yeah. i can't believe you would make this this uh this this system where like the subjects of the queen have to like prostrate themselves uh, before her, I can't believe you turn this into a hierarchical thing. It's outrageous. Like, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Like, I'm sorry, but that is that is. It's literally built like the the monarchy is literally built. Yeah. On a principle of inequality. Yeah. Like, yeah. No. <laughs> so sorry that it's, Holly and Phil are more important. It's than inherited you. for exactly. Obviously, Holly and Phil are more important than us. I say. I mean, I say that every day when I sort of kneel down in my before my shrine that has the picture of Holly and the picture of Phil. Um, and you know, yeah, I just yeah, uh, the yeah. important thing is that I recognise that, you know. But yeah, I, mm. I, uh, I'm glad you mentioned TV actually, because one of the things that um, I found most upsetting in the last fortnight has been the BBC. I mean, I haven't watched it a lot. I should issue that caveat. But every time I have turned it on, I've been really blown away by how completely, again, monocultural it has been. This is an institution that is that most of the time prides itself on pluralism, on uh, having a wide range of views represented. Um, BBC balance is almost like a running joke uh, in for people who work in the BBC. It's something that my uh, my faves, Ellis, John, Ellis uh, James and John Robbins, joke about a lot. Like, you know, if you say one thing, you have to balance it out. Like, they can't give undue prominence to brands. You know, if they mention Nike, they've got to mention Adidas. You know, if they say something good about Labour, they have to say something good about the Tories or whatever. You know, like, it's, it is famous. And yet, all of that goes out of the window, I would argue, in two eventualities. One of them is war, mm. and the other one is uh, something involving the royal family like this. I mean, it, it also applies for royal weddings, Queen's Jubilee, but really, I don't remember ever seeing quite... I mean, maybe maybe it was the case of Diana. I want to get on to Diana's death in a moment. But um, the monocultural um, expression of deference, um, sp- it speaks to like the BBC's roots as a... Um, as an institution that was an arm of the state that is, you know, crucially... And that's not like a conspiratorial, like, cranky left thing to say. If you read about the history of the BBC, if you read about Lord Reith, the founder of the BBC's, like, mission, his his politics, his ideals, it had a, a sort of mission to to sort of inform the public. It believed in educating, the, you know, the general public better on matters of, you know, new, news and, and indeed entertaining them and so on as well. Um, but it was an extremely patronising, top-down, class-structured, deferential, as we have BBC English. BBC English um, is, it's, you know, the word, the words, the right word to use is patrician, basically, right? It's, it's, uh, it's a it's a it's a father talking to its children basically and when something like this happened when the queen dies and you have two weeks of national self enforced national mourning the bbc is nothing more than an arm of the state it is like the broadcaster the state broadcaster from a totalitarian regime i'm i'm sorry but it is it sounds hyperbolic but absolutely sort of no quarter given to any other point of view um, an unwavering kind of just like dominating every single channel as well, like around the clock. Yeah. Um, really, really embarrassing. I I don't know. Like, 
I so I completely agree here. I completely agree with you that the conversations around the Queen's death were pro-monarchist, of course. But I think that there is something specific here, as you're kind of like alluding to about the idea of a national a national moment. Mm. So um, I remember you talking about the Olympics and also you saying that there was like very little oh, yeah. uh, conversation. I experienced that first li- <laughs> Yeah, very few points of view on the BBC, you know, said anything mm. other than the Olympics was a huge and massive yeah. success. So I think what you're kind of alluding to here is a kind of... Um, Oh, the obvious, the obvious plot holes, the obvious um, flaws in the idea of of balance, mm. right? Because the thing is, is that certain things which have assumed assumed uh, values are not questioned in the same way or they are not evaluated in the same way that is balance. But I also kind of think that what is interesting here is that the BBC is not a a singular institution, but it is also at the behest of wider political and social structures and also institutions, right? It is actually not the, it it isn't the only voice, right? Mm. Now that it once was, I guess, it was once more dominant at least. And I think what's really interesting here is we're seeing something which, and this is something that me and you have been speaking about quite a lot. You go online, you go on Twitter, and there are myriad, there are a plethora of dissenting views, right, Mm. that are like making jokes at the expense of the monarchy, essentially. Mm. But you go on the BBC or or whatever, and it's all just like Hugh Edwards talking really slowly. And there was this amazing tweet, actually, that was like, uh, when Hugh Edwards gets home, do you reckon he can't stop narrating? And then (laughs) the, the, the... the like phrasing of this tweet was like, it was like he was in your brain. It was like you were then. It's like, and the fridge there, of course, a great thing for keeping the liquid. <laughs> on. Can't do a Welsh accent. But do you know what I mean? It was like, it was, it was, it was so apt because we'd all heard this once and we all kind of knew and set the tone. But I think what's interesting here with something like the BBC, but you saw it in quite a lot of the ways that the br- that brands behaved. Yeah. I think broadly, most of my friends, most people I know, maybe I'm in a you know particular bubble, a London-centric bubble, but most people I know were like, oh, the Queen's dead. That's a bit sad, um, but also what that was a big moment or whatever, but didn't really feel much, right? But it was the ways that brands and corporations and institutions behaved that was the most notable and, I guess, shocking thing yeah. right? that you're having. I mean, and it created these ridiculous instances where like funkypigeon.com, the like novelty car makers are like, so, sorry, the novelty card makers, not car makers. Um, although be like, there, there will, buy a car from... Were they, <laughs> were they like, there will be, the pigeons will not be funky for the next fortnight <laughs> as a mark of respect. Yeah, and Stan... Well, do you know what I mean? And you get you get all of these brands kind of saying, and, and institutions and companies saying in a as a mark of respect, mm. we're going to be doing this. You know, street parties, like the Hackney street party, that was cancelled, although my own street party was not cancelled. It was at the end of my road anyway. Very disrespectful. Big up London. I know, but, but you know, it was like, it was raising money for a local food bank and not to create my own parasocial relationship here, but do you think the Queen would want that? I don't know. Probably. Who knows? Maybe she would want that. But what I'm saying here is that, like, essentially, like, the reaction of the BBC, it felt like, I think for a lot of people witnessing, most people were struck by the absolute bizarre nature of the fact that we didn't care that much or we weren't really that bothered either way. But the way that big companies and institutions were behaving was was extreme yeah, in the yeah. extreme. Yeah. It's it was it was bizarre, you know? It was bizarre mm. that brands mm. and their PR were taken in, that everyone had something to say. That's that funkypigeon.com and the BBC had something I mean, to it, say. It appeared bizarre, but let's try and look at why that why why did they do that, right? So um Stan, Stan Cross, uh friend of the show, excellent uh writer and creator of uh, films, websites, various other things as well. Um, he tweeted something I think that was very astute and like really d- draws in the comparison with uh, that I want to make with the aftermath of Diana's death. Um, so Stan tweeted, quote, what's really struck me about the whole grief circus around the Queen dying is that there's been very little of the predicted mass hysteria among the actual general public themselves, but 
brands, venues, institutions, and corporate entities have gone absolutely fucking insane. Uh, and he was quite, he was quote tweeting a something from an email from View Cinemas, the big cinema chain, who announced that they would be showing the funeral in its entirety, but you couldn't have any popcorn <laughs> because then it would be because yeah. then it would be too enjoyable. I mean, I've got I'll just I'll just read out a few from the list of uh, things that Cash and I have been sort of faving on Twitter and DMing to each other over the last fortnight of like just madness. Uh, I mean, this is some of the things I found particularly absurd. I have not enjoyed in the last fortnight. The, the Q tracker on YouTube, that was weird. Um, that was un- un- seemingly unnecessary. What was the Q, Q tracker? It was a live, it was a live tracking, um, a live update of exactly where the Q was and, and how long the wait was. I mean, maybe that. Oh my God. Did you know that? Yes, happened? that was so it weird. It was such a strange, I mean, it was yeah, kind of fascinating, like... but it was also, uh, uh, also, I mean, just a bit ridiculous. Um, There'd be like weather reports as well. That yeah. would be like, what's the weather? Right, in Balmoral, in St. Andrews. The weather is so The queue. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, the, <laughs> the weather for the queue is sad. So it's like, what? <laughs> there was, there was, uh, I mean, on the, yeah, I mean, I just, just sort of found all of the twee loving around the queue generally very, uh, very sort of uh, cringeworthy, I suppose, is probably the right, you know, there's a lot of like teehee, very British problems, sort of. Um, you know, cupcake fascism is the phrase that I remember being coined a few years ago for this sort of like twee British uh, self-infatuation and self-love, which uh, which makes me at, at most, at best uncomfortable. Um, I disliked uh, the woman who was last in the queue to view the coffin who said it was better, it was a better experience than the birth of her children. It was more important than the birth of her children. That's that's the thing that was on TV. It was not, and then and then she named them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Named her children. Yeah. Completely just be, needless. Just to, specify, just to be like, you guys don't care. Just about so you know, I am talking yeah. about these children yeah. who I love less. <laughs> yeah, those, those, those are those the ones. Here's, yeah. here's, their, here's their social media profiles if you want to laugh at them. Um, yeah, yeah. The I mean, the, some of the stuff we've already discussed, like the cops arresting people for peacefully protesting. There was those weird stewards that confiscated an anti-Saudi regime poster because they didn't know what it meant, I think, probably. Um, uh, I didn't like the way that the clothes that people were wearing... I mean, I did find it quite funny, but the the way that the clothes that people were wearing to the funeral were being analysed and talked about in exactly the same way as the Oscar red carpet. Like, you know, like, um, you know, Princess Eugenie is wearing, I, I mean, I don't know. A fascinator uh, by Givenchy. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, I was going to say Topshop because I suddenly couldn't think of any other clothes manufacturers. But she probably wasn't. Imagine if she was wearing a Topshop dress, that'd be quite funny. Um, I didn't like the ring of steel around central London. I mean, that reminded me of like the Queen's Golden Jubilee in the Olympics. Um, and the royal wedding in 2011 when there were loads of like pre-arrests made by the Metropolitan Police for people who hadn't even done any fucking peaceful protesting but were maybe thinking about it. Um, Can you explain what the Ring of Steel Oh, sorry, was? yeah. I saw, when I saw pictures of it, I was like, this is insane. It's, uh, it's a security really measure. Funny. I mean, I do understand what I do and some there were like heads of state from all around the world visiting and they didn't want anyone bombing it. But um, but it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a grim... It's a grim aspect of kind of modern civic life and the securitization of our cities when you see it in place. Like, um, it's something I've written about before um, with reference to the sort of trade union demos. Like, the really worrying thing is when they introduce it in when there are protests. So it's like extremely high metal fencing that it's impossible to get around through or under um, it's the sort of thing you'll see in mm. Victoria Park or any festival, any any part that's having a festival on. It's just impossible to scale, um, and it just creates. I mean, it's any walling in a city like that is being done to sort of protect capital, essentially. I would, yeah. If you want to know more about this, I wrote a long essay about it called Kettling 2.0 uh, in 2011. Um, but yeah, it's uh, as a general principle, it's not something that we want to see in our cities. It is enclosure essentially, um, and it generally just serves like a police force that always wants to overreach and stop us moving around freely. Um, but more fun things. 
Uh, well, I say fun. There was the primary school kids who were told not to wear bright clothes to school. That was cool. They had to wear black clothes. They're primary school children. They're seven years old, you know. There were the estate agents' windows with, like, queen grief displays. There were the automated... There were just the generally, like, dystopian vibes of the electronic boards around our cities displaying the queen's image. I mean, I went to the cricket um, and uh, they had them up there for, I think, duration of the match as well which is quite ominous there was the singing of the national anthem at football matches i hated that that was another thing i hated we'll do a more positive episode soon I promise <laughs> but yeah the singing of the national anthem at, at football matches general part of the general like militarization of, of like football culture and sports culture and and sort of you know the introduction of more nationalism than there ever used to be um there was the phone box that was wearing morning dress. Did you see that? It was wrapped in black. Oh, I love. I, I personally. Oh yeah, you sent you sent that, that to me. I think. It was so hilarious. Um, there were the <laughs> cycle racks. There were the cycle racks that were closed in Norwich out of respect because it's very disrespectful to lock up your bike. There was the condom vending machines that were closed out of respect. There were the weather forecasts that were cancelled out of respect. There were the children's football matches that were cancelled out of respect. There were the children's fun runs that were cancelled out of respect. There was uh, British Cycling, the organisation that sort of, you know, what is what it sounds like. They advocated that you should not ride your bike at any point on mon- on the Monday, the day of the funeral, out of respect. And then there was finally, there was Keir Starmer telling his MPs not to tweet about politics out of respect. Um, so there was lots of respect happening everywhere. I think that's a good list to sort of point to... Um, point to what Stan Cross was talking about there in terms of like essentially I think what I wanted to ask you Kasia is like it seems building on what Stan said like and building on that list it's like they was they were they were prang basically all of the institutions all of the you know from British Cycling to the Football Association to like you know um, Pretty Little Thing or like any clothing branch that like stopped shipping clothes out of respect they were f- afraid of getting monstered by the daily mail maybe for like being the disres- yeah. for being the disrespectful organization and so they went further than anyone had actually asked them to go either their users customers yeah. whatever like um members whatever it might be like cuz the thing the thing sorry one more one more thought on that subject i remember seeing um when the fa called off all football matches that first weekend something that did not happen in cricket rugby any other like more middle class sports maybe there is a class dimension to this as some people have speculated the fa cancelled all football across the country not just the premiership but like seven year old girls playing in their local park like 10 year old boys playing in their local park those were cancelled too and you had people replying to that on twitter showing a kind of dissent that you would not have been able to show after uh, the death of a royal in years gone by there were monarchists there were guys being like there were laddie guys clearly of varying class backgrounds i'm sure saying like i i love the queen and i'm i'm really you know want to show all of my respect for the queen however it is is too far like my little girl wants to play football this saturday what am i supposed to do like you telling Mm. she can't play football for two weeks like this is that's I mean that's just like overreach and it was going down mm. badly with people who were who would describe themselves as monarchists as well I thought it was really interesting it was really interesting that, that because of social media which obviously gets a lot of bad rap correctly you could actually see that other people felt the same way as you and you weren't alone mm. in thinking mm. that this was nuts basically that the FA had gone too far, that this brand had gone too far, etc. Well, there was a lot of fury as well, um, I think understandably, about the fact that the Queen's funeral was a bank holiday, and I'm usually bang up for bank holidays. <laughs> as many as possible, um, yeah. You know, I love a bank holiday. But I think that with this, it was uh, a lot of people were really frustrated because loads of hospital appointments oh my God. under a really already strained yeah. NHS were cancelled. You know, for I think a lot of people, it was... It was quite a struggle. <laughs> um, 
to basically, you know, cancer appointments postponed. Yeah, yeah, I love bank holidays, but but I think at that short notice. I mean, I also am someone who, uh, you know, violently, um, not well, not quite violently, but you know, like really protests my right to bank holidays. But it was just <laughs> such a weird. It was such a weird one. I actually did. I actually because of how weird it was, because it wasn't really like you could do much anyway. I actually watched the funeral, mm. and it was. Do you know, it was one of these weird things where in my local area, ironically, one of the only places that was showing it was an Irish pub. And I was like, okay, uh, yeah. interesting. But it's like one of these like kind of like revamped, gentrified almost pubs. And we went to this pub. The The funeral was at 11. The pub opened at 10.45. And uh, yeah, it was really... Uh, lots of people hadn't really thought through about the delays and the times that it would take to order their breakfast mm. and when that breakfast would arrive. So I'm sat in this room <laughs> watching the funeral and it was really interesting because a lot of people, I think in that very initial period, seemed quite moved by it, seemed quite struck by the kind of emotion that was generated by watching something, I think, uh, of such a grand scale. I think yeah. a lot of people were maybe overwhelmed by the grandeur of the of the spectacle. Maybe they were thinking about their own loved ones that they've lost. Um, it was it was really strange. Think, In that initial moment, yeah. you can see that kind of like the powerful narratives. I am going to use narrative, the powerful signs mm. and symbols that elicit strong emotional reactions. I'm not saying that, that people there were monarchists. I'm saying that it's that feeling when you step into a really huge cathedral. I don't know whether you get this, but you're oh, like, yeah. whoa, this is big. Oh, no, oh, I, mean? no it, I think it's that feeling. These, people really, really, but then, these people really loved God. The ones that built this, yeah, well, <laughs> no, absolutely. Do you know what I mean? And then, but 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 then we're watching, and then halfway through, obviously someone's coming around and being like, "Who ordered the uh, <laughs> mushrooms on toast? Are you Amazing. are you mushrooms on toast? Because they're obviously a pub that's like struggling. Yeah, so yeah. well, not struggling, but you know, needs needs to be able to like you know justify being open during a cost of living crisis. So they're trying to sell as much breakfast as possible. It was just, it was actually just really quite bizarre. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm glad you touched on different motivations, Kasia, there, that, that kind of people will have brought to this, because it's it, this is the overarching kind of point I wanted to discuss, really, uh, and, and just or at least point to, is inherent in the idea of national mourning, you know, and, and that... Let's be clear, this is the phrase that's been used constantly. Like the Daily Mail's front page, for example, was a nation mourns their queen. Like there is a totality suggested there. Um, and I just want to quickly unpack, because we are we have been going on for a while, uh, why that's a problem. Like, you know, what do we mean by the nation? Who's included in that? What the Daily Mail means is everyone. And if you are not mourning the queen, you are excluded from the nation and you're excluded from that imagined community, which... Uh, which means that you can be treated with the hostility that is due to you as someone who has chosen to not be part of the nation. And we know what the Daily Mail thinks should happen to people who are not part of the nation. They, you know, this is, they have a long history of, uh, of extreme, extreme hostility, whipping up hatred against people who live on this particular bit of land. Uh, which, you know, let's remind ourselves of the idea of the imagined community that is, that is the nation, essentially. I just want to ask, can you commit treason to a monarch that's died? <laughs> like, I mean, are you, are you asking that because of something of, similar, Are you right? asking that because of some of the things you said to me last week? Or... No, I'm just kidding. She was very respectful. Listeners. Don't, don't let me, uh, don't, don't. Let... But, um, but yeah, like, that's, yeah, I don't know. It's a really good question. I mean, the, you know, the the idea of treason is itself like, is one of those one of those good old traditions that we associate with the monarchy that I think uh, I don't know maybe listeners outside the country don't know quite how uh, know about these sort of ideas that like committing treason is uh, some is still a capital offence or whatever which which I don't is not true because there are there, nothing nothing warrants the death penalty in Britain anymore but there was a time when it did um, and you know we still have. We still have we still have a, an annual celebration in this country of the of the execution of a traitor to the crown, right? Like you know, we mm. which is Guy Fawkes specifically. Like it's coming up quite soon. In fact, you know, um, it's not mm. wasn't celebrated at my Catholic sixth form college, but uh, but it is it is generally part of the the life of the nation, is it not? Um, but yeah, this idea of different motivations is really interesting. And actually, Kasia, you sent to me early, quite soon after. 
the Queen Died and Marana, a Marina Hyde piece uh, where she talks about the death of Diana and links to a mass observation study of people's sort of feelings and motivations for mourning Diana. Um, and, you know, the fact that actually the way the story was told by the media at the time of an, an, a nation who were, you know, unified in mourning and were all going down to lay flowers because they all felt exactly the same way. Mass, the mass observation study found something very different, like a much more diverse and pluralistic range of views, which which shouldn't surprise us, right? Like people join, you know, I'm fascinated by crowds and written quite a lot about crowds. People join crowds with completely different motivations. They may be somewhat influenced by the people around them, but there is never one mindset. You know, a group of football fans, um, in, in a group of football fans that appear to be screaming abuse, two of them might be ha having a laugh, Two of them might be a bit lost. Two of them might be, you know, actually really hate the fact that they are being they are amongst people screaming abuse and being really thuggish and want it to calm down and maybe actively trying to calm it down. People have individual agency and motivations, and the people that uh, were going down to Buckingham Palace in this last week. Now, you know, Kasha and I and you, our dear listeners, can make some intelligent guesses about what those people were thinking. Uh, some of them would have been ardent monarchists. The ardent monarchists, I would argue, are much more likely to have been put on TV um, than interviewed and vox mm. Um Some of them... Except for that person who was really fucked at like 3 Oh my God, that was beautiful. <laughs> was like, I'm just going to give this Princess Leia. That was a beautiful insight into like the diversity of experience and like you know, mm. affect and background and interest and so on that people will have brought brought to the occasion. But like, you know, we can only survey, we can make it educated guesses, we can survey individual responses and see if they chime with our sense of what feels right to the structure of various structures of feeling that are pre prevalent at this moment. You know, there was the there was the, the there was that story of like, and this is another quite twee story, but in the queue to view the Queen's coffin, there was this like young couple that like that weren't a couple before. It was a, a man and a woman in their twenties. They got chatting and they realised they got on and now they're dating. And oh, isn't this lovely? Um, but they they were fairly typical as individuals in that it just you got the sense they weren't ardent monarchists. They just thought it would be a good thing to do. You know, like from a certain class background. Um, and until we see more detailed, until, until we see more, and that, that's an example of the sort of affect that I think that may have been quite common. Like, you know, here is a historical moment I want to be part of. Um, you know, someone who should not be named that I know uh, referred to the day of the Queen's death as a snow day because it um, because it felt like just everything was. <laughs> everything was kind of, you know, a bit different and everything was a bit sort of, okay, it wasn't a good day, but it was it was a day where there was much discussion and excitement, for want of a better word, at things being a bit different, you know? It's a, mm. I think it's a facet of life under late capitalism that we all welcome something um, a bit thrilling and a bit different, and, and, and a snow day is a really good way of putting that, I think. So while, like, you know, basically, I think I just wanted to say that we can do that educated guessing about the different motivations people brought along. We can look for case studies that feel right. But until we see a mass observation type study of, um, and if you, sorry, if you don't know what mass observation is, because I just realized that, like, people who aren't historians might not, but there these are amazing sort of mass studies of the motivations of ordinary people. They went on throughout the 20th century. Cash knows a lot more about them than me, but the ones that I've read from particular points in the 20th century were really fascinating. And um, until there's a mass observation type study of why people went to Buckingham Palace, how they felt about the Queen, why they joined the queue, all we can do is speculate. I'm looking forward to hearing more though, aren't you, Cash? Like, I think I'd really like to know how invested people were. People try and read things into all sorts of other things. People trying to read read stuff into like how many people watched on TV. How did that compare to the EastEnders Christmas special in 1997? And or whatever, you know. Mm. I think it's yeah, absolutely. I think there's there's so much historical research to be done in this area, yeah. but also not by me, because I'm so tired. No one's asking you to do it. Not, not today. If you can make some time tomorrow. Um, 
Yeah, no, we've all experienced a lot, haven't we, of national mourning in the uh Oh my gosh. Who'd have known that the morning was so exhausting? Yeah. Well, um It's just yeah. I think also, sorry, can I just say as a final point, it's just made me really annoyed, a lot of it, and that wasted energy was really frustrating. Yeah. And, like, I was listening to the radio and I was listening to this woman talking about the Queen and she she clearly didn't have very strong opinions. But she was like, oh, I think it's maybe she was in the queue or something, I can't remember. And she was like, oh, you know, I really respected the Queen because... She was of a generation who believed in duty and dedication and service. And it just made me so frustrated because there is this kind of like generational nostalgia mm. for for the, for that for, for the role that is presumed or that the queen has performed. And it's like yeah, but they were also a generation that believed in empire non-decimalized currency. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, like they believed in a lot of things, oh. but what, so does that mean that yeah. we don't like what we don't believe in dedicate like you know that we don't try to like work hard or we don't try to build things or we don't try to make things work like there is this like idea that somehow in the distant past mm. all people believed in service and dedication to the nation it's like well yeah but that nation was also that was a constructed narrative about mm. the nation yeah. and yeah it just there's just so many instances like that and i think just you know being um, annoyed is really exhausting. I think, and no, I just I don't want it. <laughs> you you want out? Well, we we are we are free I want to out. Stop you know, the world. turn on the TV and finally find uh, Dion Dublin presenting Homes Under the Hammer again. I'm pleased to say, as I discovered the other day, that you know um, normality is resumed and it's every bit as wonderful and awful as it always was. I did feel like it would never end at some point, though, didn't it? <laughs> anyway, and on that note, I think that it's time that this episode comes to an end as well. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on this journey through um, the annals of... <laughs> I don't want to say history. I'm going to say through the weird and wonderful... Well, not really wonderful either. Sorry. Oh. Thank you for joining us. Um, on this podcasting journey through a number of incredibly cursed <laughs> sites and behaviours and cultural practices. <laughs> I have been a Queen's subject, Dr. Kasha T. And I have been marmalade sandwich rejecter and uh, stoical, upstanding uh, wearer of a black polo neck, Dan Hancocks. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We love you guys. Uh, join us. Join us soon for another episode of Cast Objects. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Bye. Bye.